Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 40 with Ryan May. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Uh, got a great guest for you this week. It's Ryan May, who's head of coaching at West Bromwich Albion. Uh, Ryan's had a, a tremendous career in the game already. Uh, he's worked at uh, clubs like Chelsea and Rangers within the community scheme, and then West Bromwich Albion in the academy where he is now. And also, uh, he worked at the Football Association as well. When he was at the uh, when he was at the FA, he was a real key part in that the movement towards the England DNA project and uh, the great uh, uh, courses like the Advanced Youth Awards. So lots of real great uh, knowledge to, from Ryan to share, some really interesting points, uh, such as, you know, that willingness to go the extra mile to get your foot in the door, uh, you know, willingness to move, to move to, to progress your career. So if you're interested in coaching, you're interested in a career in coaching, this one is definitely not to be missed. So really privileged he came on the show and uh, he's a really intelligent guy, speaks really well. So this is a, this is a real cracker. Uh, busy couple of weeks for me, off to Los Angeles next week. Really looking forward to that. Working with some partner clubs out there. Obviously we work with LA Galaxy as a club partner and also lots of local clubs out there. So gonna be working with those guys with the uh, new pro club package we've got the app where we completely white label the app film their players doing some challenges and get them on the app that really helps with engagement uh, this is really unique there's nothing else out there in a world where we can actually you know get the users on the app doing it doing these uh, specific challenges so looking forward to that and at the end of the month um, really privileged to be down uh, presenting for the uh, Surrey Football Coaches Association down at Fulham uh, Football Club on the 28th of May. So if you're interested in coming down and seeing me present, uh, I'll be there. Just go to the Surrey Football Coaches Association website and get all your details there. And then uh, August as well, I'll be flying back over to Houston, America, while I'm going to be um, presenting at another conference there. So really exciting times, uh, busy as usual. Uh, remember, if you enjoy the show, please do leave a, a review. It really does help. I really would appreciate it. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the show. So, Ryan May, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, can you just give us a brief um, description of your playing and coaching experience up to this point, please? Yeah, um, I started coaching when I was 17, when I passed my B licence. Um, and then sort of I passed my A licence when I was sort of 23. And uh, I was doing that all the time, I was sort of playing non-league football. Um, I then sort of uh, got my first job after graduating from university at Chelsea Football Club. I uh, spent some uh, some good years there before moving up to Glasgow Rangers in Scotland. Uh, it was a wonderful experience up in Scotland. The weather was fantastic. Uh, spent two lovely years there and came down to the Midlands, the West Brom, um, and then moved on to the FA uh, within coach education within the professional game. Uh, and then I've come full circle and now I'm back at West Brom as head of coaching. Well, that is, I love, that's the most briefest one I, uh, I've had so far. It's good, I like it. Sure, you'll unpack it for me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, just tell us about that first role at Chelsea. What were you doing there? What was your first job in football? Yeah, so while I was at university, I was um, looking for an opportunity to, to get into sort of football coaching. Now, back in those days, it was one man bagging his balls and there wasn't really many jobs. Um, so, I was trying every angle I possibly could to try and get your foot in the door. 
Um, and w without sort of telling the story too long, I managed to um, get onto a company called Sports Academy International, which basically was a sports rep. And what they did is they uh, they needed people to go around to the professional clubs and chaperone the, the sort of the teams. And I thought, what a better way to to get myself in front of the people that I want to sort of be employed by. So um, I was fortunate enough to support a team that went down uh, to have an experience at Chelsea. It's an American side, university side, and um, met with uh, Sean Gore at Chelsea, and he was kind enough to uh, to take a risk on me and give me an, an hour's coaching at Guildford Spectrum Leisure Centre on a Wednesday evening. Now, what I didn't tell him was I was still living in Cardiff at the time at university. Um, so I was literally getting a train forward and back every Wednesday just to do an hour session, just to get my foot in the door. So it was costing me money to work. Um, but after about uh, a year of doing it, um, Sean, I rang him because I was going to be late because my train was late. And uh, he said, what are you getting a train for? I said, uh, well, you know, I'm, that's how I, I travel in. Now, my CV obviously showed that I lived in the South. Obviously, that's where home was. Um, and cut a long story short, when he found out I'd been commuting from Cardiff, he offered me a full-time job as a development officer there and then. So, uh, as soon as I left university, I was exceptionally fortunate enough to, to walk straight into the development officer's job at Chelsea. Um, very much typical community football back then. It was obviously pay-per-play sessions, after-school clubs, breakfast clubs, lunchtime clubs, development centres. Um, so it was a real sort of furnace of uh, development, really, for me to um, to really ignite my passion in, in coaching. I did disability stuff there. I did the women's and girls section within the Girls Centre of Excellence. Uh, I was Chelsea Ladies Reserve Team Manager. I, I was literally coaching every hour that uh, I was available to be on the grass, which I think massively helped me with regards um, my career to date. Interesting. So a couple of points, because you just made it, I mean, you made a couple of interesting um, points there. Firstly, you, you talked about that, the importance of networking, and you, and you knew that. I mean, tell us why, why that's so important in football even now. Um, well, rightly or wrongly, um, it's, it's sometimes who you know rather than what you know, purely and simply because it's a very competitive industry, um, and there are a lot of people with similar backgrounds, similar qualifications. And in that sort of noisy marketplace, you need to somehow get your voice heard. And the, other, the only way that I think you, you get that is if it's one-to-one -one with the person that you want to listen. So that, that ability to network, to get to know people, to put yourself out there, it's important. But I think back then, it was mainly around um, communications by telephone or, or in person. Obviously, social media is, is significantly involved these days. And I think that young coaches need to be a little bit consciously aware that whatever their footprint is, it's not too busy, if that makes sense. You get a lot of um, very active coaches within social media. And actually, sometimes that can put people, me, like a head of coaching, off a little bit. Yeah. Um, just because of the amount of sort of noise, in inverted commas, that they sort of make, good, bad, and indifferent. Um, but I think it's about striking the right balance. Um, back then, it was it was say a little bit easier because there was less jobs on the marketplace, so there was no specific people that you could you could sort of go and tackle, and, and it was a little bit easier to access them as well. Um, but having said that, it was it was still a competitive jobs market and one that was very tough to get your foot in the door. I mean, that's quite an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, how important is that for you in terms of obviously now in your in your role of head of coaching in West mm. Brom, where you're, you know a very senior role and obviously. You know, you're involved, in, you know, I assume in, in the staff coming in and stuff. I mean, how, yeah. I mean, 
what would you recommend people to do that? I mean, you know, how does that work in the current climate in terms of, you know, how do people stand out? What, what would your be your suggestion be to, to someone, look, I want to try and get in a job in an academy and I want to try and stand out from that crowd that, you know, all those applicants? Yeah, we, um, I think we're going to unpack it a little bit later looking at some of your questions, but we, I'm a big believer in experiences and um, I think a lot of people are in a hurry to get their, their badges through and I understand that purely and simply because um, we're in a sort of a, a world with the EPPP that dictates that we need to have people that are oven ready birds that meet qualifications so they can actually be fit for purpose for the roles. But I think sometimes people then rush through those without gaining the experiences and the reflections that they get from them. So for me, to stand out from the crowd, I want someone to show me that they're authentic in a way that coaching is about the players and not them. Um, you want them to be ambitious but not in a hurry. And if you've done, say for example, if you're applying for my role and you've gone through three coaching badges in the last 18 months, that's fantastic because you've achieved those awards. But I want you then to be able to sell to me the reflections and the distance travel that you've made within that. That will massively say to me that you're standing out as someone that would be really, really good for our football club because you get the piece of work that we're after, which is that ongoing uh, adaptation, improvement and learning. So to be able to show that you're a deep, reflective practitioner is, is essential to me. And anyone that's good at wordsmithing their CVs and bits and pieces, that can come across quite easy for them. Interesting. And, and then, so the other point you made is that, you obviously, you were travelling in from Cardiff and mm. that sort of, um, that, that intent, you know, the intention to go that effort, go that extra yard to get your foot in the door and, you know, make that sacrifice, if that's the word yeah. I'm looking for. How important do you think that is in, in, the, in the current climate, in the modern game, you know, in, in getting on? Oh, huge. Well, well again, I, I'll go back to that bit about experiences. I, it wasn't. I wasn't making money from it. It was costing me, um, and I wasn't doing it necessarily because I wanted to earn money from it in the short term. I was looking at it, thinking, well, okay, I need to gain experiences. So, in order to gain experiences, voluntary work, going above and beyond, um, they're essential. And and actually, within uh, academy environments, when you're working with young people, whether it's education in schools, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a grassroots coach, those players in your care. I think that will and want to go above and beyond is actually the real heart of what a coach should want to do because you know those young people you can give everything to them and you, you may be their first role model you might be their last role model because they might not progress in the game but to inspire them and and to, to try and encourage them to have a lifelong passion for the game I think that in order to go above and beyond that's essential for people to make those sacrifices. And listen, we all know within football, it's a 24-7 industry. And I've always been fortunate. I was asked a question the other week is, um, you know, why do you like your job? And it was a good question from the young lad that I was sort of being interviewed by. Um, but I basically sat around and said that I don't see it as a job. It's a hobby that fortunately I get paid for. Because I get out of bed and I don't see it as something that's a chore. I enjoy it every time I walk through the door. It's different every day. There's greater challenges. It is becoming harder, but it's it's a hobby, and that when you've got a hobby, you're passionate about something. You do go above and beyond for the things that you love. And I suppose um, knowing as we do, it is a sort of like a lifestyle as well. I mean, it is it is it is a pretty intense uh, industry and, and and profession. I mean, mm. I mean, what does that what does that look like in terms of, for instance, like your your regular working week? Um, oh crikey, 
it's it's pretty much six six days out of seven. Um, but but even on that that sort of day off, you know, there's there's football on the telly. If there's a non-league game, I'll go and watch that. I'll take the kids. So it's it's, it's striking that balance. Obviously, I'm a family man as well. Um, and it's making sure that you you can re-energise yourself, but it, it is all in, all consuming because you know Mondays, you know, it's, it's more of an officey day. But in the role that I'm in, um, every other day, pretty much on the grass from nine through to twenty-three. So it's quite a, a sort of a wide remit and a wonderful one because I get to see the, the, the sort of the entry point and the exit point for the players and that distance travelled between the two. Um, but every day you're looking at two two sessions on the grass. That you're either supporting coaches or working with players, um, so it's it's just a wonderful existence. I can't, I, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's kind of like although you get quite tired and it is quite stressful sometimes, it's it's a wonderful hobby. And do you know what, teachers, educationists, anyone that works with children, I think really have got the best jobs in the world for regards to rewards. When you see that them succeeding, whatever that little success bit is, it might be making a pro contract. That's wonderful, but actually. We take as much joy with the kids that, that graduate and go on to university or the kids that manage to sort of sustain a career at the level that they're after or they sort of go on and, and start their own business. And we've had lots of those stories and all of those successes come because you care for them and you become quite um, integrated with your relationships over the time. Interesting. Right. So let, let me just, I don't get too much into that. So we'll come back to that later. Let's yeah. just wind back a bit then and talk about you. So you, uh, you make the decision to move up to sunny Glasgow. How did that, how did that come about? Um, I was on a court on my A license course with a gentleman from uh, Rangers, and I was at Chelsea, and, and I wasn't even looking for for a move. I was really enjoying my time there. I was learning lots. It was a really good environment with lots of good people. Uh, and I got a phone call out the blue to say there was a, a senior development officer's job up at Rangers, and that um, he'd spoke to his bosses, and he sort of recommended me, and said that I should throw my hat in the ring, um, which was quite daunting because I'd just got married. I've got a young man of uh, sort of just under 12 months old. Um, so I went up there for the interview. I never used to put my date of birth on my CV because obviously at the age of sort of 24, I'm quite young. Um, and obviously when I walked in through the door, I sort of, uh, I won't name names, but I got looked up and down and the first question was, well, how old are you, son? <laughs> okay, this might not go too well today. Um, and the whole sort of series of questions around the interview were around how I would manage people. You know, there was a lot of uh, Hall of Famers that were on the staff and how would I sort of gain their respect and credibility. Uh, so it got to the point sort of three quarters away through the interview that I sort of turned around and said, listen, gentlemen, I've flown up. Um, I don't want to waste any more of your time. Obviously, you know, you, you've got some challenges around, around my age. I've got a strong belief that you know, I can't gain credibility and respect from having played 300 league games or having managed people for 10 years. Uh, you know, I'm in the room. You, you've invited me in the room because you might saw some value in me, but that's okay. We can just sort of call it a day because, you know, I'm not the right candidate. Um, so I walked out, rang the wife and said, listen, I, I don't think we'll be heading up to Scotland anytime soon. It didn't go too well. Um, and by the time I'd landed and turned my phone back on, I'd had the job offer. Wow. So... Um, they obviously saw something in me um, and went up there and had, yeah, very, very eye-opening uh, experience over the two years. It's, it's, a, it's so ferocious in their passion for football up there. It's, it's admirable, really, just how much they eat, sleep and breathe it. And so tell us a little bit about these, <clears throat> excuse me, the day in, day out. I mean, what was that like 
uh, you know, as moving up, moving up there from the south, you know, living in the, in that in that in a new 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 uh, new environment and for the family and settling down and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's like most things. I think if you if you want to have a career in football, obviously we've you might have to be prepared to move. Um, that sort of relocation and resettlement of the family, I'm not going to lie, was very very difficult. Um, but when when I was there, it was quite a sort of a wide encompassing role in the fact that we had some domestic uh, products that were obviously pay for play again back in the day of, of most community football. But we had quite a large uh, international and sort of residential program. Um, obviously, Rangers being quite a brand. There's, there's lots of sort of expats and supporters club across the globe, uh, so there was quite a sort of an interest um, to provide those sort of products overseas as well as domestically. Um, there was also an aspect of uh, recruitment in the fact that um, Rangers or Celtic really are two sort of really big strong clubs up there, um, and the community departments are pretty much in every school. So you're deemed by the football club as being one of the biggest scouts. So trying to provide a recruitment arm for that. Um, as well as providing some support to the development centres and the academy as well. So it was pretty much, which is what I quite like really about football clubs, that's one thing that I do miss a little bit with the influx of all the jobs, is you got to sort of match and do lots of things across lots of different departments. Whereas now we're very fortunate having a full-time coaching model at our football club, but everyone's got a very specific job, if that makes sense. Um, so I think sometimes you, you sort of you lose out on that enrichment of, having your finger in lots of different pies and learning lots about the football club and how it works. And then, and how much involvement was there with the academy? And was it? Did you get the opportunity then to go and see academy sessions? Did you get sort of a taste to say, look, actually, that's where I want to maybe end my next my next career progression? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, when I was at Chelsea, I was doing development centres as well. Uh, the ambition always was to to try and step up into um, sort of elite academy football. It's obviously where. I'd had a taste of as a young man and, and obviously most people that come into the game want to, to work at the business end and that professional sharp end. So um, it was mainly around development centres, around three for the football club, um, as well as like an advanced development centre, um, which was really heavily linked to, to the, uh, the academy because it was at the Murray Park, the training ground. Um, and, and I was doing some bits and pieces, almost like as a cover coach really across the academy age groups. Um, but personally, myself, I, I, I'd always go and watch the academy games. You sort of one of the biggest things I think is important for coaches is to train their eye. Um, watching football, I, I don't think you can beat it. I, I see a lot of coaches that watch top end stuff, Champions League, Premier League, which is fantastic. But you've got, then got to be able to watch all the different levels because the speed's very different. You know, if I'm working with the under 11s coach uh, this evening, and then I'm working with the 18s coach tomorrow. The speed of that game and, and what that coach is looking at and what is they're, they're requiring to meet the needs of the players is very, very different, although it's the same game. So, um, watching lots of different games, I always try to go to all the different levels, foundation, youth development, professional phase, um, at range during my time there, just to try and immerse myself in it. And I suppose even though I wasn't actively participating on the grass in all of those phases, still trying to be uh, training my eye and my knowledge along the way that I was there. Interesting. So then tell us about your next role. Then you get a, an opportunity to move into academy football. How did that come about? Yeah, um, it was a little bit fortuitous, really, because, again, I was, I was enjoying my time at Rangers. But um, sadly, my wife's father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, and he was very young at the time. He was only sort of mid-50s. So obviously, with the uh, how that disease sort of works, we knew at some point in time that, you know, 
things would go downhill. Um, and obviously being away in Scotland and, and Zoe's family being from the Midlands, um, it was important that we, we started to think about in, a little bit in the future of, of getting back towards home for her. So um, it was quite fortuitous. One of my uh, old managers um, knew Dan Ashworth. Um, Dan was obviously looking for uh, some staff at West Brom. Um, and again, it, it, I've been always been quite fortunate with that, that something sort of sort of materialises and puts itself up by someone, thankfully, thinking that I might be the right person for, for that role. Um, and that was what pretty much facilitated the move back down to, to West Brom. Uh, when I first arrived, it was a, a sort of a dual role between academy and the community. So I was coaching and workforce manager uh, down at the community programme and obviously then sort of a three-quarter post at, at the academy, really. So... Um, so it was a lovely, fantastic first job, which I did for around about 18 months before <laughs> and moving across full time uh, into the academy. And so what, what, was the, what were the first roles in the academy then? What, was your, what, were, you, what were you doing in the academy? Um, well, it was dual role in initially. I was head of, head of performance and foundation phase, uh, sort of lead. Um, and then slowly but surely, as ECCP sort of horizon started to come on board and and obviously the club invested a little bit more in, in staff. It steadily grew so that um, my role as sort of assistant academy manager for the nice to 11s was, was established. Um, and, and then pretty much from there, I sort of lived that role for two to three years, really. And then um, the, obviously the FA sort of came knocking when Mr. Ashworth uh, moved across. So then tell us about that time then as uh, working in the foundation phase at... at your first job in the foundation phase. What was it like working day in, day out with the players? What were the challenges? What was the major difference between working, you know, full-time with academy boys and working yeah. with the, the community scheme? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. I, I actually found the academy stuff a lot easier. Um, I, I think partly because, not, not because um, the, the quality on show, because that's obviously obvious, but... Um, The skill of differentiation, the skill of entertainment, the skill of communicating very effectively to to different people having different wants and needs. Um, so, having had a real strong underpinning of, of those aspects, when you work with players that are highly motivated, highly driven, and talented, then actually all of those skills make your life a little bit easier. Um, it was wonderful just to come in and live day to day working with players that um, have strong passion, strong ability, uh, and a real desire to, to want to improve themselves. That's you know I don't I don't care what industry you're in. If you've got people that are that hungry and that passionate about what they do and what they want to achieve, it just inspires everybody, and it's a nice place to go and work. Really, so it was a wonderful time working with the young players. I really enjoy working with the youngsters because they're just like sponges. They just want to absorb everything. They want to please you. You get the emotions of, of pure joy, but also um, real, almost like depression, really, when things don't go quite right. They have some roller coaster ride. Um, and, and actually, being a parent, you, it's, it's nice to sort of see those aspects of the young people because you can see that they're in enriching experiences in their life. And actually, it's to see them come out of those moments, good, bad, and indifferent, is, is really, really rewarding when you start to see them that penny drop with the work that you start to work on and then you can see that little click and the faces will light up and go, yeah, I've got that now and then what's next for me and I want the next challenge. 
So it's it's a wonderful experience to uh, be part of that process. And what was it like in terms of um, you know the, the the environment? You you got some big clubs around you. Was you know it's compet- compet- competition within the Midlands there. Uh, what was that like? The relationship with the, with the with the other teams in your area, Birmingham Wolves, and yeah. you know, was it rivalries? What game days like? Yeah, I mean, we're we're in a real hotbed of, of football in the Midlands, and uh, the, all the clubs around here obviously are really fantastic. And I learned that a little bit more um, when when I stepped in to be the FA role, and I was fortunate enough to go in and see them. But as as West Brom, we had a real strong coaching culture, so. Um, Dan, obviously, along with Mark Harrison, our current academy manager, who was head of education and our 16s coach at the time when Dan was here, um, we, we had a very strong DNA and the football club have, have been at the forefront of, um, of, of, I suppose, being a front runner a little bit. We're one of the first to have a technical director and have a top-down sort of club approach to how we want to approach development and uh, performance. So having that identity and that framework that you can then sort of splice into your personality was, was really, really, really good. Um, and I suppose because we had that coaching culture, we were a little bit different to what the other clubs potentially offered. Um, and it's also nice to be the underdog because you've got, well, at the time, we, we weren't um, probably first picked for any of the young men that were, were identified from our recruitment department. Um, and trying to compete against people with bigger budgets, bigger reputations, um, was 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 really quite good. I quite like that underdog feel. Really, I'm definitely someone that prefers to to live that country than rather than being a favourite. So it, it always is nice when when you play your local rivals. It's it's a real friendly banter, and and you can see the boys really up for it. Um, and it's we've, we've done a piece of work over the past couple of years where our coaches communication habits, they do training and match days, um, and it's fascinating to see that on a local. Derby rivalry game that communication increases by around 27 percent. So wow. it's, uh, even subliminally, the coaches, um, although they don't necessarily their first thought is like a derby, we're up for this today, and I've got to be different. Just subliminally, those those passions come through. So it's uh, that's great, and I think the boys love it, the football club love it. And I think it's healthy as well because it drives us all on to to get better and, and to make sure that we're trying to keep that step ahead and keep up with pace. Because if you if you didn't have those close big rivals and neighbours, I think potentially complacency could sort of uh, step in. I've I've seen some geographical pockets around the country where you've got one big fish uh, and not too many others around, um, and and at times you you can have that little bit of uh, comfortableness that's that sort of slips in. So we're lucky obviously, to be surrounded by as many good football clubs, big and and teams like Walsall and stuff as well. There's a lot of fantastic. Uh, threes that do wonderful jobs around here as well so it's uh, yeah that's a, it's a great part of the world to live in and, and develop football and so then tell us about your your, your next role then you move on the, the going to work with the FA at St George's Park how did that come about um, I've always been a tutor so obviously I was really fortunate to pass my licence when I was a, a quite a young man at 22 so um, from that I, I managed to uh, persuade my county FA to give me a job as a level one tutor when the, the, the course is first initiated um, a long time ago now. but So I started tutoring very early and I suppose I took that on board as, it was almost like a bit of a safety net. Initially it was to earn a, a little bit of money on the side as a tutor, um, but also sort of a what if, what if I get sacked, because obviously football even at the time then you, you might not always have a job. So I thought if I had a plan B within education and tutoring that that could be another sort of sideline for me. 
Um, I suppose I grew to absolutely love it, to be fair. And I was delivering level ones, level twos. I was delivering all the youth awards at the time. Uh, and I was a B-licensed tutor. And um, so I was fully immersed in, in the world of, of tutoring and education. And then the FA Youth Coach Developer Roles came up, which was a new initiative uh, from the professional gang. It was funded, obviously, by the professional gang board uh, in conjunction with the FA, the Football League, and the Premier League to provide bespoke in-situ support uh, to, to the professional game and the community, and so well, the academy coaches really. Um, so when, when you read it on the job spec, it almost seemed my perfect job in the fact that I loved my tutoring, that it meant I was still in an academy environment working with elite players and elite coaches to help meet their wants and needs. So when Dan uh, moved across to be uh, the role at the FA, and those jobs came about, he just sent me an email and said, listen, there's some jobs coming up, I think you should have a little look at them. Um, now obviously, there'll be some really experienced people that would go for it, but I think you should probably try and throw your hat in the ring for them, um, which I did. And on the first occasion, I was unsuccessful uh, in, in my application, um, but I wasn't put off by that. Again, I suppose I'm quite stubborn in the fact that I probably knew I didn't interview too well. Um, so when the next bout of, um, Jobs came up with the FA Youth Coach Developers, then I threw in again and I was fortunate enough to be successful and spent four wonderful years there. So tell us a little bit about the, the FA that you, you went into. What was that like? Was it, had this change, the England DNA change already started? Is it, is it already, all the way gone? Is it, you know, all in good flow? What was, what was happening there at no, the time? No, it hadn't started yet. So Dan, Dan had just been in and obviously I think when he first went in, he'd, he'd done sort of a branch um, review of what we currently had and where we were going. So I, I stepped in at a fantastic time because it was the start of the transition. Um, not only with regard to the England national teams and, and the implementation of the DNA, but also the restructure of, of the technical directorate and the coach education department uh, and the revamp of all the courses. So the, the onset of the Advanced Youth Award, uh, the rebrand and re-evaluation um, of the UA for B and UA for A licenses, um, and obviously then the knock-on effect down to the level two. So it, apart from my day-to-day -day work of going into clubs, providing in-situ support around the, the qualifications that they were on and the CPD for the football clubs, I was also really fortunate enough to sit on uh, the level two steering group. I was on some of the DNA uh, international team steering groups uh, for the evolution of the in and out of possession and transitional stuff. Um, I obviously was integral into the Advanced Youth Award, the UFB and the A licence, throwing my two pence worth in on what um, the courses could and should look like. Um, so it was a wonderful time to be part of, of, if you like, planting the first seeds, which obviously subsequently have, have flourished a little bit and um, the success is, is starting to bear fruit a little bit. But the main thing of the role was to re-establish better working relationships with the professional game and the international teams because um, in the past I think it had become slightly eroded uh, there was a bit of a gulf between uh, clubs and country uh, and I think the FA YCD role was, was integral in sort of bringing those two people together really because obviously you had a, a, a frequent um, FA member of staff coming in that build rapport that was showing you that you know we understand that they're your players uh, we take them on loan if you like, but we want to work together for, for the good of yourselves, your football club, your players, but also internationally. So it was a really exciting time and, and a really rewarding time and almost like uh, a second university education for me really to be exposed to so many good coaches, good people and good clubs was, was immense. And so what clubs were you working with? 
Um, over the four years, it changed a little bit. I started with a, a little bit of a split region, so I was supporting the Southwest, so Exeter, Plymouth, and Torquay. Uh, and then I had three clubs in the uh, in the Midlands, which were Northampton, Shrewsbury, and Warsaw. Um, so splitting my time running up and down that M5 was was interesting. Um, after about a year, eighteen months, then my Midlands clubs changed. They sort of um, gave me West Brom, Birmingham, and Coventry. Um, and then slowly over a little bit of time, we had someone that geographically came in that was a little bit closer to the southwest. So. I then sort of transitioned into having uh, losing my Southwest clubs and picking up uh, Wolves as well. So I ended up having Wolves, Birmingham, uh, Coventry, uh, and West Brom, obviously. So it was over over the sort of period of time, it was it was fantastic to be involved still within the Midlands uh, and getting some exposure to clubs that I hadn't um, experienced before. Um, but also to go and see a wonderful sort of product down in the Southwest and all the three football clubs, although they are. Um, Category threes down there. Um, they, they do wonderful jobs, you know. And, and again, it's just nice to see that uh, attitude towards development in different parts of the country, regardless of resource and budget, really. So it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And so, how does it? I mean, so how 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 often did you visit these clubs? It, how regularly would you go to one of these partner clubs? Um, I, I, where where as near as damn it possible, it was at least once a week. So. Um, I tried to uh, balance my diary, so obviously with the Southwest, when I had the split region, what I would do is I would spend three days down in the Southwest every other week. Um, but when I was down in the Southwest, then they'd get me morning, noon and night. So I would, I would book in my diary, so I'm, I'm doing sessions in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. So I, I sort of was almost like a full-time member of staff for them for a day every other week to sort of intensify and maximise that resource to make sure that and they were still getting what they needed. Um, when I then obviously moved into the region and the clubs were all around me, um, I, I, like I say, I would, I would try and probably visit where, is, where I could, if it, if it was required to, I'd be in sort of for two or three slots a day, so I sort of split, split the day into morning, afternoon and evening. So I basically said to the club, well listen, take two of the three slots, um, whether it's morning and afternoon or afternoon and evening, you, you decide. Um, and then obviously supporting match days in the grounds or Saturdays and Sundays. But everything was driven by the club. So it was a club's-led approach and still is. Um, and making sure my job was really to observe, translate and relate. So we had um, the FA messages and the UEFA rewards that you obviously had to hit criteria and competency around. But then also the clubs had their own identity around how they wanted to play. So my job was to try and bridge that gap and, and sort of, I suppose, align the two really so that criteria for awards were met but also the wants and needs you felt it was benefiting your football club because it was about you. And how was it, did you, I mean, did you get a different reception when you went into one of the Cat 3 clubs than when you went into one of the Cat 1 clubs? I mean, was it, I'm mean, interested to know how the academies responded to you and then also, as we know, that, you know, the uh, philosophy of academies can, can uh, differ yeah, you know, quite sharply from around the corner, from you know being next to each other. How do you yeah. deal with that as well as a coach educator and trying to fit into their philosophy or their methodology? Yeah, I suppose. Do you know, what? I was really, really fortunate. I um, the clubs that I had from day one were always fully accepting of me as a person. Uh, I never had any uh, barriers. Every door that I walked through was was always a welcome, open door. Um, 
And I think part of that, though, is it, it doesn't happen overnight. Like I said to you before, it was all about building those relationships. It was making sure that they understood that I was there for them and not me. Um, building those one-to-one relationships with coaches to try and make sure that their wants and needs are fulfilled, sure the club's desires and wants and needs are fulfilled. So a massive part of it was, was listening, trying to understand what they're about, what they want to achieve, trying to immerse yourself into their identities and their brands and their DNAs, um, while still making sure that I had the professional integrity of the badge that I wore with the three lines to, to ensure that you know, if I'm there for a specific aspect of passing someone on their A license, that that awards and credibility stood up actually that the boxes were ticked and, and they, they got to the level that was required with regards to that. So it was, it was a fine balancing act, but you know, a, a lot of the job was informal. So a lot of the time when I'm working with coaches, they're not on a qualification framework. It was about them, the football club and the CPD development for them. So it was wonderful to be invited in and to be, to be made part of it. And I actually felt like a, a member of staff at each of those football clubs. That's how welcome I was made and how I was treated. Um, I was like, a, I suppose, a consultant or additional resource for them when I came through the door. Um, so from that perspective, it was wonderful. Um, I, I never came up against any negativity or any barriers. I'm not saying at times that there wasn't uh, disagreement, uh, because that's football. Everyone's got good opinions, but I think it's how you manage those conversations to, to just open it up and, and discuss, well, okay, well, yes, you disagree with this factor or that or this, but okay, well, you know, why do you disagree? And just unpack those conversations to understand where people are coming from and to walk around the problem and see it from all different angles and then find the best solution to move forwards. Um, but it was, it was quite testing for me as a, as a coach educator to wear all those different hats to try and understand those different brands, uh, which is why I said it was, it was almost like another three-year degree, really, um, with the amount of learning that I went through and, and the exposure to such uh, fantastic people, coaches, across the spectrum. It was, it was, it was well, just a really wonderful time to be a part of it. And I suppose I got some nice add-ons as well of, of being able to attach myself to some international camps and, and see the evolution of the DNA and, and those aspects. It was, yeah, just a wonderful four years. And, so, and what about the, tell us about the Advanced Youth Award then. I mean, what was that like as well? You said you were involved in it. I mean, I'm lucky enough I did that course, a uh, really yeah. great course. Uh, what was that like having all those people from all the different you know, academies in, in, in England in there and then, and then having all those different ideas swelling around and, and trying to get your message across? Um, what, what I found about the Advanced Youth Award and what I loved, it, um, it was very much a 50-50 input. If you go onto the A licence, it's, it's a test of your knowledge of the game, isn't it? So there will be some sort of tried and trusted principles of play. There's a framework that you've, you've got to play within. Um, so it's, it's, it's very much about moving towards a set criteria. Where the Advanced Youth Award is different, it's all about you and the football clubs. So again, there are modules and there are um, sort of concepts of learning that we're trying to unpack. But actually, it's the interpretation from you with regards to those theories. So it is about the club, it is about you, it is about the individual. It is about player, player being syllabus. So to walk into those environments, it was very much more like a CPD uh, process than it was a course of learning. Because everyone, every time we did the course, although it's the same course, all the candidates make it brand new and fresh each time. Um, people come with different perspectives. People come with different opinions. Um, but every year that we felt that we ran the course, because the guys that have then gone through the experience, gone back in and lived it, had their in-situ support, the candidates that came on from their clubs in future subsequent years 
were in a in a better starting place than the ones before. So it constantly just kept raising the bar of of the standard of the course, the level of conversation, and and, and just I suppose the the level that people were starting to to, to be at really. Um, so it was a fantastic course. I absolutely loved tutoring it. I loved supporting people around it. Um, and it was a very, very different learning environment as a tutor to a lot of the courses that I sort of grown up delivering. I mean, I think that's an interesting point. I found that as well. I thought it was an amazing course. I got loads of value from it. But that's why maybe it was, sometimes I felt it was a little bit, we were, some of the candidates were, we were wanting a little bit or we were expecting to be led a little bit more mm. in terms of like, this is what we suggest when it was a lot yeah. more, you know, okay, you guys tell us what you're doing. Let's have a, you know, let's talk about all the different, you know, ideas around this area. I suppose from, from my perspective, um, and again, this is just Ryan May's personal view when, when I was in the role, um, I think far too often we've, um, and I hope that come across the wrong way, but spoon-fed coach education, and it's a case of the man at the front doesn't have all the knowledge. There's more knowledge and experience in the, in the room looking back than there is sort of from the man at the front or the woman at the front. So um, it's... If you look at level four now, I think level four is a little bit like a degree. You don't get taught your degree, you read for degree. So it's trying to move coaches towards that understanding that they are accountable for um, their learning. It's not just going to be handed to them. Um, they'll be guided, they'll be framework. But actually, that part when you get to the elite end and you're full-time within an academy or you're working part-time, um, you're working with elite players at the elite end, so actually, for your development, you have to be starting to own a lot of that process. You'll be bringing a lot of experiences and enrichment from your clubs and knowledge and learning to start to share. Um, so for me, actually how it started to move, I think it's really, really beneficial because we, we talk about empowerment for our players all the time. And you want players to stand up and be good, strong decision makers. Well, again, that doesn't come from necessarily being told all the time. So I think what they've tried to do, and I think for the better, is start to evolve it along that piece so that actually coaches can, can have that empowerment, exactly the same as we're trying to articulate to our players back in the clubs. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting though. So for instance, you know, at the time I was at Chelsea, if I'm sitting on a table with Man City, Tottenham, Arsenal, mm. West Ham, I know, you know for a fact the way the approach and the foundation phase in all of those clubs is different. You know, it's unique. Yeah. So I suppose it's a way of like, you know, how do you affect those guys, you know, who have obviously, everyone believes what they're doing is, is the right way to do it. Yeah. Um, but and also and there is then you know the question is is there you know a right way or is there, you know or isn't there a right way of doing things? Um, I think everyone will have their belief. So within that foundation phase, Pete Sturgis is um, genius for me, and he's got a very strong belief in 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 a way of working. But it, Pete's the first one to admit it doesn't mean he's right. I don't think anyone's got a copyright on on questions or answers. And I think the the whole part of that process is to. If you can now start to justify what you, your application, what you do, and be able to back it up with some theorised underpinning, then actually what you've done is you've managed to unpack your your way of working and understand why it works for you or why you believe it's right, rather than just saying like we did in the past. Well, our way works because we're producing players type stuff. Well, it's it's that deeper bit of well, why is it working? How do you know what you know? You know, yes, it could be, but could you be getting lucky? Could it just be through your recruitment? So it's trying to get people to unpack that multidisciplinary environment and start to really look for the areas that they're getting the success and maybe areas that they can start to improve. So trying to support someone that's working through 
that was that sort of translation and relation piece when you go back in the club. Yes, there were certain criteria that you wanted people to achieve. So, for example, let's take the social corner with Merv. Um, you've got the social construction and the attachment theory bits and pieces. So, what does that look like and feel like in your football club? How do you apply it? Do you think it's important? If you do, why? If you don't, why not? So, there was that aspect of you being able to look at something, try to understand it, see how you've mirrored it and matched it across, or look to the areas that you do start to dust some of that aspect, and then take it in the direction that you want to drive it and, and evolve it. And I think that piece of work continually keep people moving forward, it keeps people inquisitive, it keeps people searching for new answers, and it keeps people um, having things relatively quite fresh. Just, that's just from what I believe anyway. Yeah, I think that was really powerful as well, most part, the social part was really powerful for me and everyone, you know, the feedback was that was good, but I was thinking, it's quite unique though, isn't it, if you maybe look mm. at some federations abroad on the continent, maybe they're a lot more prescriptive in terms of, right, this is what you do with the young players, this is our model for development. Yeah. Uh, and whereas, whereas the advanced youth towards a little bit more uh, communal, it's not as prescriptive. Do you think that was a direct result maybe of the fact that, you know, the, the, you know, the Premier League academy system being so powerful here and, like I said, all, you know, all academies having such distinct approaches and not trying to say, right, this is the one way what you're doing maybe isn't the right way? Yeah, listen, I think it's one of our biggest strengths as a, as a nation and a culture, but potentially one of our biggest Achilles heels. But I've, I've been to lots of different associations through some of the UEFA's Euro panel aspects, and I've presented at some of those UEFA conferences. And when you look at those different associations, most of their leagues are driven by, uh, and I suppose for the want of a better word, owned by the, the, the National Association. Whereas obviously our country is very, very different. We've, we've got... Uh, three strong partners in the Premier League, the EFL, and obviously the FA, and each own different aspects of the game, if you like. So the FA is about education and governance. Uh, obviously, the Premier League is around the franchise, as is the EFL around their franchises. But you've got 92 professional clubs at any one time within that that sort of pyramid, um, which all have different, unique uh, underpinning and history, and. If you look at any other country across the world, they don't have that strength in depth. So our, the level of opinion and development and growth around identity within our country has been so rich. And I think the Advanced Youth Award is a way of trying to tap that um, and trying to bring people into the same room to just discuss and learn from each other in, in a way that maybe we hadn't done so well in the past. I think everyone was always inquisitive, but if you think now over the past sort of decade, the amount of increased CPD opportunities, trying to go and look at other sports, businesses, that um, appetite to try and search and seek for those answers is, is far greater than what it ever was before. It did go on, but nowhere near to the, the level and depth that it currently does. So I think, well, that's what the Advanced Youth Award attempts to do, is it attempts to try and bring together what is quite a difficult political situation with lots of different opinions around the depth and strength in our game. Now, do we always get it right? No, far from it. But I think if you look at what we're now starting to produce from academies, we're the envy of Europe. You know, I've got a lot of friends in those associations across across the nations, and and actually they're looking at us not only from a coach ed point of view, but obviously from a youth development point of view, and thinking that we're miles ahead and they're playing catch up, which is a wonderful proud moment to be part of because actually in the past. We've been probably looking at the Spains, the, the France, the Germany, the Italy's of the world, being quite jealous and trying to copy their models. Whereas now, I think at the minute, 
we, we've probably just got our noses in front and we're the front runners a little bit that they're trying to, to learn from us. So I think that tells us the distance that we've travelled and I think the advanced youth award and the evolution of what coach education and delivery looks like has been part of that. Fantastic. So then just talk about the new, your new move on again, your next role at uh, West Brom. You've gone full circle, like you said. Uh, you head yeah. of coaching now. How did that come about? Uh, obviously, West Brom um, have been a significant part of my my job market life. Um, and obviously, as an FAYCD, this was one of the clubs that I was supporting. Um, when the Premier League started to talk about the, the potential funding of, of the head of coaching role, obviously, that was initially discussed with, with lots of the parties and as an FAYCD you could see the distance that they were trying to travel with it and it seemed quite an intriguing role. Um, obviously being at West Brom they knew me, they knew the stuff that I sort of brought so the role came up um, and it was advertised and I, and I applied for it. It was, it was very much a, a sort of a, a strong fit in the fact that I demonstrated a lot of the skill sets required for the role and obviously they knew me as a person so it was a nice hand-in-glove fit potential. Um, and I think the reason why I returned back into club football was the way I tried to view the FA role, and I tried to explain to people, is I was a bit like a grandparent. You get all the nice bits every so often, but actually, if someone was to ask me to define yourself in one word, I'm a coach, and I, I, and I love the day-to-day. Um, and although I'm in a club day-to-day, that's what I mean about the grandparent, I'm not actually getting the the full good, bad and indifferent bits. You just get the nice bits and then hand people back because you leave and you're back next week. So that motivation for me, having done four, just over four years in the FA, I felt that I was ready to go back into that day-to-day environment in one place and try and do well, pretty much the exact same job I was doing as the FA about in-situ support and development, but I could see some more momentum and continuity because I work with the people every day. Interesting. So and so then, tell us a bit about that then. So, I mean, how much time do you do you get on the grass in terms of actually coaching players or how much are you observing? Yeah, I suppose, listen, every, every head of coaching in the country will be very, very different. The way I try to employ ours is one thing that's really important to me is that I have to try and retain credibility in my own mind, but also in the eyes of the coaches that I work with. Um, so I work from the pre-academy all the way through to the under-23s with regards to staffing support. So making sure that their development action plans are uh, integrated and they're working towards their wants and needs of development. Obviously then that has to subsequently knock on effect to making sure that the players are improving on the grass. Um, But also the other aspect of being the head of coaching here is to make sure that our DNA is evolved, it's progressive and is actually applied on the grass to the level that we we expect it to be. so it's, it's a really nice role. I see it as a role that I've got my cake and eating it, really, because I get all of the bits that I enjoy. Um, I can start to work my own diary to make sure that I'm getting on the grass when I'm trying to work on the grass, but also balance that off with providing the support for the coaches. So um, I suppose each week I try and get on the grass at least, at least twice, selfishly for me as a coach. Um, I'll try and do a PDP session uh, once a week with the, with the lads, um, and then I've got like themed week, so I might have more of a heavy foundation phase week or more of a sort of a, a YDP sort of t- tinted week. Um, and I suppose depending on what that flavour is of that week, that's the session that I'll do on the grass with regard to me getting a little bit of exposure to the players as well. So um, that's how I try and manage my diary to try and get across the, the sort of the 26 staff that we've got that I'm supporting and obviously getting the wants and needs of my development as well. 
and I mean, talking about your own development, how do you develop yourself in terms of keeping fresh, getting new ideas and CPD? Uh, I'm on a wonderful program as part of the head of coaching role called EHOC, um, which obviously uh, is, is the Premier League initiative that, that enables us to help us as move towards developing ourselves as not only heads of coaching, but also as coaches. Um, but I live the same mantra as my own staff. So we have... Um, our development action plans are built over three-year cycles, not seasonal. So, um, in order to integrate it with qualifications, our guys have got four development action plans: one for self, one for environment, one for game, and one for player. So that way, then, if they're on a qualification framework, they shouldn't have a separate development action plan for their awards to, to what they do on a day-to-day basis for their club. So. they can just splice that into into their personalised development action plans to make it easier. Um, so I have the same. Um, and like most of the time, we build ours on experiences. So although it's a competency-based framework, I don't necessarily get the lads to look at how good they are or how bad they are at that competency. I try and get people to chase time spent. So we, we have a, a list of competencies that we feel are important to developing young players. Um, but when you start to measure yourself and reflect about the areas that you want to work on, I want you to measure it in fact of how much experience have you got in doing that competency. Good, bad, or indifferent at being able to carry it out, but how much experience have you got? Because I'm strong, but I'm yet to meet uh, a very wise man out there that's been doing his job for a long time that at worst is, is just more than proficient. So experience counts for quite a bit. Um, I've not yet met someone that's been doing a job for 30 years and is poor at it. So um, trying to get people to chase those experiences to reflect is, is really key because what I said to um, the club when I when I took the job and they asked me what does success look like how do you define your KPIs my argument was I should be able to make myself redundant in three years because it's wonderful that you're putting someone in to support coaches but it's also quite a sad indictment that you needed you know because coaches should have the skills and ability to be able to to progress themselves and move themselves forward with regards ongoing life learning. So um, where we score ourselves, if you like, on experience, I also ask them to think about themselves with regards to energy levels and motivational levels. So we've got a little model that we talk about how we probably would define our relationship in the football club. So regardless of experience, if you sometimes put stuff off, our relationship would be one of tasking. So we'll meet quite frequently every sort of three to four weeks not because I need to micromanage you, but I need to provide you the support to get some momentum. Um, if you've got um, early type experience, then but you're professional in your job and you're motivated to do your job, you do it properly, you do it without question, then our relationship might be one a little bit more of a, of a mentoring one. And um, if you've got high experience and you do your job professionally, potentially our, our relationship might be one of sort of delegating or coaching. So that frequency might then be, I might meet you, if you're inexperienced, every six weeks. If you're highly experienced, every 12 weeks. So we sort of define that, that landscape so that eventually what I want people to do is migrate towards that delegation area that you all know how to develop yourself and you, you know what lifelong learning looks like for you and you can, if you like, drive your own ship a little bit without necessarily needing that support. Um, and what I said to the board, the success bit comes from me is this. In three, four years' time, you should be able to ask the staff, do you need Ryan anymore? Which the answer should be no. But then I want them to ask another question, do you want Ryan? Because if they then still see value 
in me as a person that can add value to what they do, even though they don't need me, for me then that's where I'm trying to drive towards. Interesting. And then tell us a little bit about then, um, what do you look for? Uh, yeah. what, like, whether it's like a um, one of your coaches you're supporting or maybe someone who's come for a job application, what's, what makes a successful session for yourself? Yeah, very good. Um, we, we want people to, to display passion when, when they work, whatever that might look like. So you, you can always tell when you watch someone that's enjoying themselves as a coach. And if you're enjoying yourself, we want the players to enjoy themselves. So obviously there has to be that framework of learning and, and learning objectives and it has to be progressive and players need to be challenged and stretched. But, but most importantly, your coaching personality is essential for me. Um, and what we look for when we, we're, we're ideally looking for coaches, it's like I say, it's such a competitive market. But like I say, when we've got the interviews this afternoon with people on the grass, I'm looking for that coaching personality. I'm looking for that person that can energise the players, that can that can build that rapport, have that relationship. They're authentic with why they're why they're there. They they demonstrate nice humility. They put the players first. Um, so we have a little thing. I don't want to see coaches coaching sessions. I want to see coaches coaching players. So although we have curriculum and topics, that's fine. That's just a vehicle that is is I suppose the springboard to launch from. I want you then within that to coach the players with their wants and needs around how that curriculum is adding value to them as a person. Um, which isn't always easy to do. It's quite difficult to differentiate across um, 16 to 18 players within a squad. Um, but I suppose that's the that's the enjoyment and the challenge that we face as coaches to make sure that you're being able to balance that across that seasonal cycle, within the phase cycle, within the journey and the lifespan that they're within that academy football. Um, but everything's built around individualised learning plans and how the players can progress. And that empowerment of the boys, just like I'm doing with the coaches. The coaches, players should be reliant on the coaches. We should be working towards empowering those players to not need the coach, but value the coach. Um, and what about some advice for a young aspiring coach you'd like to get to, the, to, to a good position in the game like yourself? Um, firstly, I think they need to understand themselves. So they need to understand what their coaching brand is. So again, we do lots of work with the staff uh, where we sort of we call them communication heat maps. Um, and I suppose where a player gets pro-zoned and runs around, we do the same, but with a coach and his communication because it's his most valuable tool. So gaining that insight into what your strengths, weaknesses and preferences are are key. Because if you understand those and you understand maybe your biases, then you've got a better way of potentially impacting on the performance of yourself and the players. So, um, firstly, if, if do you understand yourself well enough to know and be able to articulate what those are? So, it always used to get me quite cross a little bit when uh, people started to almost poo-poo command coaching and we sort of swung the pendulum a little bit from, you know, pressure and answer, stop, stand still type aspect to let the game be the teacher stuff. And it's one's not right one's not wrong I, I say to my coaches all the time it's, it's a little bit like um, if you play the game of seesaw it's quite shit if you play it on your own so if you're just giving consistent trial and error work a player will get just as bored of that as if you're giving consistent command so it's about playing that game of seesaw it's about sometimes it's about you sometimes it's about them sometimes it's about you trying to articulate your message with some instruction and rich information other times you'll set some challenges and some guided discovery tasks to allow them to explore. So it's that constant game of that give and take and trying to figure out what's required and when. 
Now, that's a very difficult game to play if you don't understand what your biases and your preferences are. Because you tend to become what you are. So if you're a command-driven coach, there's nothing wrong in that. But if you're over-command and you don't allow some of that empowerment, you just need to potentially just understand you might need to put some limiters on yourself. And then obviously we're very fortunate we work in coaching pairs. So it's, it's trying to complement each other and start to recognize your own strengths and weaknesses and work together as a little team along with the players to meet the needs of yourselves and the boys. So my advice for coaches for to be is, is consistently check and challenge yourselves around who you are and what you do. Um, how good are your reflection? I still find it is an area, even now, that I'm constantly trying to get on the coaches to be strong reflective practitioners because that, for me, is the, is the start of your, your future planning. Your reflective piece then influences the next session, influences the next month, influences the next year of your, your work. But if you don't track that well enough or you don't have a, an efficient way of capturing your emotional attachments to those reflections, then you're missing out on lots and lots of learning. Um, so what we encourage the lads to do is the last 10 minutes of every session is reflection time. So one of the coaches can detach. I encourage them to use Siri on their phones um, and just literally detach, click on Siri and just talk your reflective through on the little reflective framework that we have and unpack those, those reflections. So it takes a minute, minute and a half to talk through and get a real strong reflection that might take you 15, 20 minutes to write. So, so that's time efficient, it's emotionally attached, and over time we can start to see what you're learning from those pieces. So trying to get people to be better reflection practitioners is, is essential if you're going to get better and meet the needs of the players. Interesting. And finally, how inspiring is it having you know, a manager who's made his way all the way through the academy from the very bottom of that, the, 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 the very start of the process rather? Um, yeah, it's fantastic because obviously me, me and Jimmy started at the same time uh, in uh, at West Brom in sort of 2006. So, um, yeah, it's fantastic. Not only is he a friend, uh, he's an exceptionally gifted coach. He's, um, his passion and commitment to above and beyond and, and being a student of the game and, and consistently looking for that next performance marginal game, he's, he's just immense. Um and, and he's very inspirational to any of the coaches. We use it as a, as a wonderful uh, example of a pathway for coaches to, to look at if they want to achieve it, because it is possible. But that only comes because of the man that he is, the personality that he has. Um, and obviously then he's got talent on the grass, but I think you can have a lot of talent on the grass, but if you don't have his energy, his drive and his passion, then I think some people might fall short. So he's got a full package from it. Um, and yeah it's really inspirational not only as a, as a colleague but as a friend alright fantastic Ryan I know you're a very busy man you've got another busy day at the academy head uh, thanks very much for your time it's been fantastic my pleasure thank you thanks for tuning in to the mypersonalfootballcoach.com soccer player development podcast mypersonalfootballcoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level master the ball master the game